0: huge joy for me to be here today. I always love and look forward to Sundays because of so much that I receive from you. I I very much believe in body life. I think that the church is the most beautiful thing on earth, and God has designed the church, even with all its imperfections, so that together we might reflect the glory of Christ and that we might minister to one another in thought and word and deed and it's always a joy then. There, there's a, there's a pouring out that occurs when we come together as God's people, but there's also a receiving from that we get when we're around God's people. And so as we pour out our time, talents and treasures, the Lord also pours back into our lives. And that's why I love living my life together with you as God's people. And together we have one common father and Our common father has delivered to us his word, and so we're going to spend time in it today because we want to hear what our heavenly father has to say. So you can get on over to Revelation 17. We've been studying this epistle for several months now, and we're kind of coming into the final third or so of it, Revelation 17. I want to begin just by getting getting you thinking a little bit about a rather bleak subject. Sorry to start off on a bit of a downer, but perhaps... In your life so far, you've had the unfortunate and sad and tragic experience of knowing someone who has taken their own life. And as you've assessed that, maybe it's even been someone that claims to follow Jesus. As you've assessed that and asked the question why, it may be that that person took their own life because they encountered some tragedy in life which they did not feel they could overcome. Maybe they went through a traumatic divorce or they lost a loved one or they experienced something that just depressed them to the point that they didn't want to live any longer. What what, what would it take for a person to be pushed to the limit to the point that they would not even want to live another day? I want to tell you a, a brief story. It's really an account and it's a recent account of a man by the name of Andrew Brunson. Andrew Brunson served for over two decades, I believe, as a missionary in the country of Turkey. And last October, uh, the American government arranged for him to be released from a Turkish prison. Brunson spent two years in a Turkish prison for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was arrested and he was thrown in jail. Unless you think that his experience there was neutral or fun Brunson who recently spoke at a church convention said and this is even being reported by the secular media like Fox News said that his experience there was so dark that he actually thought about taking his own life that's how grim that's how bleak his imprisonment was and his imprisonment keep in mind was because of his ministry for Christ. That's not a good place to be. But coming out of that jail cell and now seeking to spread a meaningful message, especially to young people, he says, and I quote, that he does not believe, quote, that youth are prepared for what is coming. And what he's referring to is the fact that we live in a world, especially in the West, where we think, ah, you know, persecution and martyrdom, that's, that's for people in, in Turkey or the Middle East, or some obscure village in Asia. But I believe, in keeping with men like Andrew Brunson, that the time is coming and, in fact, is already upon us where the church of Jesus Christ is going to experience greater persecution and greater pushback for the message that we hold dear to than any other generation in North America has ever experienced before. and I'm not convinced, and many aren't convinced, that the younger generation in particular are really ready and equipped for that. And yet some of the things that our young people are experiencing or will experience in the years to come will be greater than certainly what my generation ever experienced in grade school or high school or university that it will become exceedingly difficult to live as a Christian who actually believes in the Bible and has had a life-giving encounter with Jesus Christ in North America. Brunson states that his faith was sustained by the reading of God's word and prayer. And not just eyes to the page But experiencing the transformational truths that God's word contains for the people of God. We live in a culture that is increasingly, 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 vilely, dramatically, despicably, despotically opposed to the things of God. We live in a culture that has literally pulled out almost all the stops when it comes to human sexuality. We live in a culture that is characterized by a radical, and that's an understatement, I just can't think of a better word, the radical sexualization of our culture, especially our young people, right down to early grade schoolers. Radical, unspeakable, unheard of sexualization of our culture. And in addition to that, we continue to struggle with the reality that some members of humanity who have not yet taken their first breath still are at risk of having their lives taken while they're in the womb. These are despicable sins that are taking place in our own country. And it might be that some of us, more often than not, need to admit that we're, we're kind of asleep at the wheel. We're kind of not really paying attention. We're kind of majoring in the minors, and we've lost sight of how challenging it is to live out biblical Christianity in a culture like ours. So it begs the question, are you ready for the potential of prison time, for the potential of death? Oh, that, that, that'll never happen. Yeah, you watch. Are you ready for it? It's happened before in human history. It's happening in other places on our globe as we speak. And it's fast moving into our own country. Are you ready? In Revelation 17, we receive this encouraging message. No matter what happens, no matter how bad things get, no matter how despicable and despotic and evil Culture gets, pursue holiness, even when harassment is pursuing you. Pursue holiness. We sang it today, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. But it is the holiness of God that also becomes the call of the Christian. God is holy, and God is calling us to seek out a life that reflects his holiness into a very unholy culture and context. Here's what it says in Revelation 17 this is the last book of our Bible and it speaks both of the challenges of first century Christian living for the Apostles and early church and it speaks of the challenges and difficulties that believers will experience during the Great Tribulation and it has an application and a message for us in the moment as we experience a certain measure of the things that first century believers and future believers will experience as well. So track with me as I begin by reading from verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, that is the bowls of judgment as God begins to pour out his judgment upon the world, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now the great prostitute here is a symbolic picture of a series of individuals and, in fact, organizations and nations, a whole worldview, a whole culture, in fact, that rises up and overtly opposes the things of God. And they are considered great, not because they truly are, but because of the greatness of their depravity. And the description of a prostitute is... A description of sexual immorality, obviously. Not because the great prostitute, the world system, only specializes in sexual perversion. But because sexual perversion is innately so self-focused, so self-absorbed, so me, myself, and I focused, that sexual immorality becomes like an archetype in Scripture that captures all sinful human activity. So here we have God calling his readers to come and see as God begins to pour out judgment on one known as the great prostitute who's seated on many waters, meaning whose reign is from sea to sea, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk and he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now keep in mind, revelation 12. If you were here for that, there was a woman that's portrayed as righteous that flees into the wilderness. We're going to come back to that. I'm just kind of reminding you of what we've already read. So he's, he's carried away into the wilderness and I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So here we have in this text yet another depiction of a system, a series of organizations, a series of movements, governments. Notice it says the kings of the earth participated in this. This is a global phenomenon where it's as if, minus the remnant who is being martyred daily for Christ, the majority is standing up. And they're living their lives in abject opposition and defiance to the one who created them. And again, sexual immorality here becomes symptomatic, if you will, of all sins that oppose God because sexual immorality is pleasure-seeking sin. It is self-gratifying, self-indulgent sin. In Revelation twelve fourteen, the same kind of thing takes place where a woman flees into the wilderness. Now, she's framed there in Revelation 12 as being righteous. So then, having read verse, or chapter 17, one might think, well, maybe that's the same woman. And indeed, maybe she is. The woman in Revelation 12 symbolizes the people of God. Either the church, present, or Israel in the past, or a combination thereof, who seeks to live for righteousness. But in Revelation 17, if that is in fact a reference to the people of God, Now we see that the people of God are marred with sinfulness. How do we know that? They are not standing for the things of righteousness, but this woman is now pictured as being one who's seated on what? Notice the description, a scarlet beast. Now that doesn't sound very different from the red dragon that pursued the woman into the wilderness in chapter 12. So what might be going on here is that this depiction is describing the compromise that has come upon the people of God. The compromise. They they fled for the sake of righteousness. They were pursued by the dragon, but now they're sitting on top, riding a scarlet beast, if you will. And this scarlet beast is definitely one who is opposed to the things of God because they are described as being like Babylon. Babylon was an ancient city that was so evil, it's like their name became synonymous with evil, kind of like we might say Sodom and Gomorrah. When you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, do you think of anything righteous? No, you think of absolute, abject human depravity. This beast is described as being like Babylon. They are an eschatological symbol of the Antichrist and the Antichrist's kingdom. So it might be that this book is basically saying, hey, the people of God are marked by compromise. And indeed, that's often true. When we think of the radical sexualization of our culture, or we think of the taking of life in the womb in our culture, How shocking and shameful is it that many that proclaim themselves to be Christians are actually in on those and supportive of those agendas? And my response to that is, if you are in favor of those things or supportive of those things, you are in fact not a Christian. You're not worshiping the Christ I worship. You're not reading the Bible that I'm reading Because the radical sexualization of our culture and the sins that are being committed by people and promoted from the highest office of our land down are sins that still wind up in the damnation lists of the Bible. That these are the kind of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that hasn't changed with the passing of time. The word of God is as true and as the same as... It is today as it was 100 years ago or 2,000 years ago. But for the sake of, I don't know, cultural connectedness, compromise, tolerance, not wanting to be considered self righteous or judgmental, there are those that would still say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> That's a problem it's a huge problem. It's called heresy. It's called apostasy. It's called false teaching. And so how shameful is it when the world commits sin? Shameful. But how much more shameful is it when the people of God who hold in their hands the word of God and claim to have the spirit of God actually stand for and promote those kinds of sinful behaviors? might be that this is the message of this text but if it's not it's certainly the message of the broader ethos of scripture now most likely the prostitute in this passage is intended to be for the first century listener for the early church an immediate symbol of rome and so the writer sort of communicates in cloak and dagger kind of espionage like code language as this message is distributed to the early church, that they were living at a point in time when Rome was the great prostitute, calling people away from God to worship false idols, especially the idol of sexual immorality. By the way, the same is true today. If you want to measure the spiritual temperature of a culture, you don't have to measure its truth telling. You don't have to measure its economics. You don't have to measure its marriages. You don't have to measure so many things. You know what? You can pretty much measure the spiritual temperature of a culture by paying attention to its sexual ethics. And if its sexual ethics are in the gutter, the culture's in the gutter. Why? Because again, sexual sin is innately pleasure-seeking, self-indulgent, me-oriented. It's all about me. It's about my pleasure. It's about my delight. It's about me having free expression. It's about me doing whatever I want. This, by the way, is an abuse of democracy. It's an abuse of the gift of true freedom. It's an abuse of the gift that so many of our forefathers and mothers gave to us by laying down their lives on the battlefield saying, well, they gave us freedom. Well, the intention was not freedom to destroy yourself and your families and your marriages and your culture by doing whatever you want. You can measure it. And because you can measure a culture's spiritual temperature by its sexual norms, it's an absolute truism that our culture, sadly, shamefully, is very much in the gutter. I mean, think about our country. Those of you that are at least my age or older, Think about the downward shift since the 1970s, since the 1980s, since the 1990s. Think about how far we, we have come in abandoning basic, historical categories of human sexuality in the name of freedom and tolerance and diversity. Again, where your tax dollars are being spent by your federal and provincial government, not to mention numerous co- corporations, to actually promote a prideful agenda that is overtly opposed to the things of God. And it's destroying people en masse. This is the culture within which we live. And there's many Christians, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to get sued. Sue away! The less I have, the more I'm going to say. I don't want to get sued. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to stop frequenting that establishment. The Word of God calls us to be a people who separate ourselves from evildoers. And while we want to be salt and light, too many Christians use that as an excuse to continue to associate with and promote and support and participate in organizations and businesses that are anti-Christ businesses. Well, I'm sharing my faith there. Many of you are not. And even if you are, there's many places for us to go to share our faith. I don't think I'm, I've ever been short on opportunities to share my faith Ensuring my faith does not require that I support in word or deed or financially businesses or corporations or governments that are anti-Christ in their mission. Notice what it says in verse 1. This is a word of hope that the prostitute will be judged by God. The prostitute will be judged by God. This is one of the reasons why we call people away from sin and toward righteousness, because judgment awaits those who in their depravity or their ignorance or their will for rebellion are living in an antichrist kind of way. They will be judged by God so that no matter what happens, God's holiness will be lifted high. What is the mission of God, church? The mission of God is the glory of God. Many of us were taught otherwise, that the mission of God is to save us. That's a byproduct. That's how God receives glory in part. But God is actually very self-interested. The mission of God is the glory of God, and God will defend his character, his holiness, his grandeur, forever he may allow people to rebel for a period of time or push him away for a period of time but god will ultimately win and if you oppose him you will lose now what is shocking about this is you know there's a temptation to think well like evil is kind of a minority thing you know like it's, it's a minority of people that murder. It's a minority of people that are rapists. It's a minority of people that commit acts of genocide. And so we have this notion that the majority is usually headed in the right direction. And it's the minority that causes all the problems. So we lock up the minority. We, we punish the minority. And while it's true that the most heinous of sins are usually committed by the minority, This passage reminds us that the majority is in on this. The majority is in on robbing God of glory, stealing God of his fame. It says in the text that the kings of the earth participate in this. This is a reminder of like the global delusion that has taken place since the beginning of time. I was talking with a Christian brother this morning, and I said, you know, even among the people of God, this can happen. One of the most notable examples of that in the Old Covenant scriptures is King Josiah. He comes to the throne. He's a little boy. He's like eight years old. He's like in grade three. And the description of what's taking place this is among the people of God. This is a people who have Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. This is called the Torah. This is like their Bible. This is all they had. These are the covenant people of God, chosen by God since before the foundation of the world. Descendants of Abraham. I mean, they they got it all going on. They got Joseph on their side and Jacob and Isaac. They got all the great names and all these awesome people. And yet centuries in, as Josiah begins to reign, someone's like having a yard sale in the temple. And they're pulling out all this stuff. And they're like, oh, what's this? Oh, it's the book of the law. Anybody ever heard of that before? Nope, never heard of it. And it's like they, they actually rediscover the Bible. So for generations, people didn't even know about it. No one had read it. This temple was still there. Apparently some sort of religious cultic practice was still taking place. But the Bible was like unknown. Does this not sound vaguely familiar? (laughs) Because we see that in our culture today, but check this out. Check this out. We see it in some of our churches. People are like totally clueless to the Bible. What? But you have a cross on your roof and you call yourself a church and you have some sort of a liturgy or service and you sing some songs and someone speaks, but the Bible's not invited to church. Or if it is, it's just like a little, I don't know, let's pick some friendly little passage that looks good on a scripture text and we'll just preach that every week. And the full counsel of God's word is not taught. So then what you end up with is people with a lopsided view of God. Like you have no idea how weak I am and how hard it is for me to say what I'm saying right now. Because there's a part of I just want to like run off the stage and go home. Now, I, I can be a pretty tough guy, but I am, I am so weak and feeble and susceptible to peer pressure and what you think and what you say, and, and how much more, then, is that going to be a temptation for someone with almost no conviction and no Bible knowledge at all? And this is why so many individuals that are pastoring churches today are nothing more than compromisers. Because in the absence of a word from God to bring conviction and keep them in their pulpits, even when they have to say things that would they'd rather not say. We have a generation of Christians that are kind of like the Jews were in Josiah's day. I don't know my Bible. I mean, I don't even know where my Bible is. And I certainly haven't lived it in any obvious way recently. The kings of the earth show the global delusion that can so easily overtake a culture. And I believe, hands down, without a doubt, it has overtaken ours. The vast majority of our beloved countrymen are absolutely deluded into believing lies. About themselves, about their sexuality, about the true nature of freedom, and about the value of human life. They have believed wholesale, lock, stock, and barrel, absolute vile lies. You look at this text. Fortunately, there's always a remnant who serve God because... The great prostitute has made many martyrs of them. But these are people who are saying, you know what, no. I'm not going to sit down and shut up. I'm not going to stop pursuing Christ. I'm not going to stop humbly presenting my faith because this life is just a moment of time wedged between two endless eternities. And I know... That the way that I spend that little flash of time will have an eternal impact upon all of eternity. So I will live large for Jesus, even to the point of death. There's always been a remnant who have served God faithfully. Sometimes it's been an itsy bitsy tiny little minority. Other times it's been a billion people. There's a lot of evangelical Bible-believing Christians in the world today. But maybe that number is going to shrink down into a very, very small remnant. But nevertheless, Christ says that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He doesn't say how big that church will be. But the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, to this prostitute, speaks of blasphemous names, adornment and wealth, cups of impurity, murders toward the saints. What what are these all about? Well, these descriptions, I think, paint a vivid picture of both the circumstances that the first century church struggled with, and also the eschatological reality that future believers will experience during the tribulation. However, whether it's in the past or the future, we also need to understand it's in the now. So read again with me, beginning with the middle of verse six. When I saw her, that is the prostitute, I marveled greatly. Now, he's marveling not like in, wow, you're awesome, but wow, you're terrible. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was, so it's historical, is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction And the dwellers of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. By the way, you may not like it, but election and predestination is splattered across the entire corpus of Scripture. God has selected before the foundations of time a remnant that he will call unto himself. Read it there. It says, written in the book of life. From the foundations of the world, which predates you, no matter how old you are, predates you. This is grounds for hope. This is grounds for selfless praise. This is not grounds for discriminant evangelism. This is not grounds for arrogance or self-righteousness. This is supposed to rev up your worship life to a ten at a tent lest you think that you just kind of stumbled into it. Before the foundation of the world, they will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls, like, what is this all about? This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. It's like, okay, thank you very much. Let's take a metaphor and interpret it with a metaphor. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other is yet to come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So that little while, just kind of make it like a little mental note of that. Because this is a reminder of how brief, compared to the eternal reign of God, evil will actually have its way. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, But it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour. That sounds a lot like a little while. Would you not agree with me? A little while, an hour, it's a brief period of time. They're going to receive authority to oppose the things of God, but it's just for a little while. Together with the beast, these are of one mind. Aha, so they're unified. Evil is united here. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast, so they consolidate consolidate their power. They will make war on the Lamb, who is Christ, and the Lamb will conquer them. That's my favorite line in this whole section. The Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Which is kind of like the response to being called and chosen. You should remain faithful. Verse 9 interprets a metaphor with a metaphor. It's like, ha, thank you for that. Seven heads equals seven mountains, seven kings, five fallen, one is, one is yet to come. Then we have the seventh king who will only reign for a brief period of time. We know that they're all symbolic of evil, but it is kind of a curious question, like, who are they or what are these things? And then we have the beast, which is described as, well, he was, he is not. He is yet to come. And somehow he's connected to the seventh king, but he's also going to be destroyed. Now, when we read passages like this, we never want to like press the details so far that we're like, we're starting a new denomination because we disagree with you on the, you know, the eighth horn of the seventh beast and the, the ward and the horn, and we kind of like split on stuff like that. So we want to stick with the broad message, which is clearly this is some sort of a depiction of evildoers that oppose the things of God and want to destroy the lamb and destroy the people of God. But because it's here in the Bible, it also gets you thinking like what's going on here. So I think what's going on is that what we have is like a historical representation of different key nations. Seven doesn't just mean perfect. Seven also means complete, and evil can be like completely evil. We have a depiction of seven nations that historically and futuristically were or will be opposed to the things of God, and they kind of pattern themselves more or less after one another. And yet in the end... The lamb comes and as they come together and they have like this one final genius plan to try to take down Jesus, we discover that the lamb ultimately beats them and they lose. So how do we interpret the specifics? Well, on one hand, the seven kings and so forth might just collectively refer to the powers of this world with no specific nation or nations in mind. And that is certainly a very valid interpretation of the text. So that would suggest then that the seven kings are not literal, but again, symbolic of the complete evil bent that the world has towards God. That would be the same with the seven mountains. The seven mountains are powerful. They're kind of ominous. They're kind of grand in a certain way, but also terrifying because you can get lost in mountains. You can run out of oxygen in mountains, you can fall in mountains. So they may symbolize the complete world being opposed to the things of God. Or, more literally, apparently there are seven major hill formations around Rome. And there were ten different rulers that successively led Rome. So the the writer might be thinking of, his first century context and the geography of that area and the rulers that had come and gone that all had opposed the things of God. So this would likely be like the immediate interpretation of the text. So if you're living in the first century and you're hearing this message preacher thinking, I know what he's talking about. It's the hills around Rome. It's those 10 guys that all oppose the things of Christ. But I think there's some reason in the text to also see this as having some futuristic overtones to it. Why? Well, because the seven hills have nothing to do with the role of the woman, because the coming ten leaders have nothing really to do with the role of the woman. And if the message is so simple, seven hills, ten rulers, then why in verse 9 would it say that this requires wisdom why would it, why would it require wisdom for us to discern what 's going on here if the interpretation is just so readily obvious so chances are again, as i've already mentioned, the writer wants us to think about patterns of evil that what he 's talking about, yes, had first century immediate application you'd think Rome, I know who he's talking about, the Roman rulers, yeah, they were all antichrist. But there's also a futuristic, a not yet dimension to this. So think about this from human history. There, there essentially are, in the word of God, seven major nations or kings, if you will, that did or will oppose Christ. Directing their anger, especially toward the, the people of Christ. So by the way, if the world wants to attack Christ, guess who they attack? They attack you. They don't attack Christ. Christ is in heaven. They attack you because you are the bride of Christ. You are the representatives of Christ. So, thinking of human history in the past Egypt, they attacked the people of God and imprisoned them for hundreds of years. After that, there was Assyria that invaded Israel and took the people of God away. Then they declined. Babylon came, that's kingdom number three. They attacked the people of God, took men like Daniel and Ezekiel into captivity. Then they declined. The Medes and the Persians took over. They persecuted the people of God, then they declined. Then for several hundred years, the Greeks ruled the world prior to Christ. They opposed and persecuted the people of God. And then come the first century, Rome was in the business of persecuting the people of God right up to the beginning of the third century. So that's six kingdoms. But if you think back to Daniel, Daniel spoke in his prophecy of 70 weeks. That the first 69 weeks, which refer to 69 seven-year periods, he basically predicted that all these kingdoms would come and oppose the things of God. But he said there's going to be a 70th week, a 70th seven-year period that he casts into the distant future. I would call that the Great Tribulation. And during that period of time... There will be another king or system or nation that rises up that does the same kind of thing and attacks the people of God. And this would be the kingdom of the Antichrist, the kingdom of the beast. And during that period of time, as we've already read in our study of Revelation, if you've been with us through this, the people of God will be incessantly attacked, incessantly persecuted, and incessantly murdered. For their faith in Christ. So, therefore, this explains why in the text twice it says, He was, He is not, and He will be. So, we're like in the is not period. Six kingdoms made it their mission to attack the people of God. Now we're in a period where, yes, there's still attack, but the, the culmination of that is going to come to a head during the future tribulation period. It's also interesting as we read this text that it it speaks of the united approach of evil. Did you see that? They're all like coming together. They're plotting. They're scheming. How are we going to take down Jesus? And they all kind of come together. But you know what happens? Let me just spill the beans before I read the text for you. Because evil and evildoers are so self-absorbed. Any unity that they have is not sustainable. It's not sustainable. I can give you examples from marriage up. In marriage, if you have two people that do not love God, but they say they love each other, like, well, I, I'd like to marry you, you'd like to marry me, let's get married. You know why that relationship's not sustainable? You know why there's no profundity to that relationship, no meaningfulness to that relationship long-term? Because the only reason why you're in it is for what you can get from the other person. That's the nature of sin. It's all about self. What can you provide for me socially, economically, sexually, emotionally, status-wise? You're just, you're just in it for what you can get. And then you wonder why people clash in marriage. Because marriage requires a third party who is God. And God speaks into your life and he says, actually, you're not in marriage for yourself. You're in marriage so that you can put on display the very essence of the gospel. As the wife submits to her husband, it's like Christ submitting to the church. As the husband lovingly leads his wife, it's like Christ lovingly leading the church. Your marriage is actually the gospel on display. And this is going to require forgiveness and long-suffering and patience and endurance and unconditional love. But as soon as you let selfishness reign, you have a terrible marriage. Same with government alliances or corporations. Oh, let's all get together. We can make more money. Or let's all get together and participate in this social cause. Yeah, but if everybody is just kind of in it for their own self-gratification, that won't last. It may last for a generation. It may last for a few hundred years. But ultimately, it's going to crumble. So here's what it says about evil. The angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So it's like, what is this? It's the globe. It's global humanity in on antichrist behavior and the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitutes. Like did I just read that right. Evil hating evil. I thought they were all in it for the great prostitute. no, they start to hate the great prostitute. Evil hates evil. When you're motivated by selfishness, it eventually has no limits. To use an extreme example, given an extreme example, sometimes you hear about like serial killers. Many of them start off having sex with prostitutes, and then they start killing the prostitutes. It's like, well, how does that work? You're engaged in an intimate act with someone, and then you want to take their lives. Yeah, because it's all selfish. What you're getting and receiving is all selfish. So you're just taking it to the next logical level. Let's just snuff the person out. And it's the same with global evil. They will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. It's like, wow. So evil turns in on itself. It destroys itself. It can't get along forever because it's so self-absorbed. Now, where does all this come from? This might rock your theology a little bit. Look at the next verse. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Check that out. Even as evil unites, God is behind it. He's actually orchestrating it on a certain level. He's bringing it together. Because like, if I can just kind of get all these people into a movement, into a nation, into a government, you know what? It won't last. Because selfishness doesn't beget life and freedom and liberty and growth. Selfishness begets destruction and arrogance and competitiveness and pride. And that doesn't last. It may last for a few generations, a few hundred years, like I said. But in the end, it will destroy itself. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. In other words, believer, it's all going down one day. So how do we respond to this in ways other than what we've already discussed? Let me leave you with these simple truths. Number one, number one, be prepared. Be prepared to do some jail time. Be prepared to lose your job. Be prepared to fail your class. Be prepared to be kicked out of your program. Be prepared to be threatened. Be prepared to be labeled a bigoted, hypocritical, self-righteous, intolerant weirdo. Be prepared. Assume it. Expect it. If you're living for Christ, that's increasingly going to be part of the world within which we live. Parents, prepare your kids for it. Prepare your kids for it. Do them a favor. The world that we grew up in is not the world they're growing up in. Prepare your kids for it. Warn them. Fan into flame their spiritual consciousness. Discuss the issues with them. Don't just focus all your energy on the temporal stuff. Get them thinking, talking, mulling over, participating in spiritual activities and conversations. You're doing them a massive service in doing that more than the immediate things will be bad but we stand for righteousness we even promote righteousness in our culture no more of this we only promote righteousness in the church no we promote righteousness in our culture too and our government why because it's right and that's enough but secondly because unrighteousness destroys people that are made in the image and likeness of god And if we love people, we're going to speak truth into their lives, even if they don't like it, because we know what's best for them. It's like a physician that knows how the body works, speaking to a three-year-old. The three-year-old may not like it. No, you need to do this, because I know what's right for you. You may not know what's right for you. And most of us are more like three-year-olds. We don't actually know what's right for us until the Father tells us what's right for us. And then third, we play the long game. We remain hopeful. We know that in the end, God wins. God will receive glory for himself even in a wicked and perverse generation. So be encouraged by these words. Let's take a stand for Jesus Christ, the glory and honor of God.